0: I've been here eight years. I haven't had any family come visit me. I had friends from college. I've had friends from Scotland. No one in my family. And I offered. I told my sister and my nephew multiple times, "If you guys get your passport, one hundred and sixty dollars a person, I'll pay for you to come out here and visit me." Never did it. Their thing was. Oh, no, I'm not going to get an airplane going over that ocean. And of course, I had to swallow that because it was my decision to come here. And so I also had to go through the stages of grief, especially over the last year and a half and accept that I have family, but I don't have any relationship with them.
1: Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad, while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. I'm Christine. I am so happy to have you here with me for today's episode. So the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign is coming so quickly, so, so very quickly. And in May, 2023, We will be celebrating three years of Flourish in the Foreign, and I want to celebrate with all of you. So I am planning an Ask Me Anything episode for our 100th episode. That gives you the chance to ask me anything about moving abroad, living abroad, living in Spain, podcasting, any of the past podcast guests, truly anything, anything at all. So in the description of this episode, there is a link. It's called Ask Me Anything. Click on the link and leave me a question. Or you can ask me a question in my DMs, be it Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or reply to one of my emails and ask me a question. I've already received a couple of questions. So thank you so much to those of you that have submitted your questions I can't wait to answer them on the 100th episode of Flourish in the Foreign. Now, this podcast is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And so I ask all of you to please support this Indie Black Woman podcast. You can support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee or purchasing an item off the podcast wishlist. You can also support this podcast by subscribing to the podcast's YouTube channel. Yes, I launched the YouTube channel when I launched the podcast almost three years ago, and we're almost to 1,000 subscribers, which is kind of crazy because we have way more listeners. (laughs) So I know that you guys are listening but you're not subscribing to the YouTube channel. And hey, I get it. I'm quite sporadic with the YouTube, okay? But let's make a deal. If we get to 1,000 subscribers, I'm gonna ask you all to pick some topics you want me to discuss, and I'll do those videos. They'll probably be lives, okay? So if you have not subscribed to the Flourish in the Foreign YouTube channel, go ahead and subscribe today. All right, on to the next episode. Season four, episode eight. Today's episode features Sheila Dixon and Sheila hails from New York, but has been overseas since 2014 with stops in Scotland, Spain and Andorra where she currently resides. While her pro basketball career is what took her abroad, it is love and the desire for a better, different life that has ultimately kept her in Europe. She is a graduate of Brown University, And she received her master's at the prestigious University of Edinburgh. She is a growing serial entrepreneur with companies in Spain, Andorra, and the U.S. And thrives on the hustle to build a life for herself and her loved ones, while also impacting the lives of others through the beauty of sports and the advancement of education. This conversation with Sheila was so good. It's so good. I cannot wait for you all to hear it. So without further ado, I'll let Sheila tell you all about it.
0: My name is Sheila Dixon. I'm 31 years old and I live in Andorra now, Andorra, since 2020. And I've been abroad now eight years, which I just realized like a week ago, that's just crazy. I'm from Schenectady, New York. The capital is Albany, so it's about 15 minutes outside of Albany, New York. And I have a really cool background from childhood. I was adopted at the age of four. I was in foster care from the time I was 12 days old. And the foster home that I was in, it was essentially the woman that adopted me. My mom, Phyllis Dixon, she adopted 11 children in total. And she had three of her own. So I do come from a really big family. Like I said, 13 siblings. And then my mom was the matriarch of the house. And I think when I look back at the seeds that were planted and why I'm still abroad, it was multifold. Firstly, my mom was... Diagnosed with agoraphobia when she was about 30 something years old. And for many years before I was born and when she was in her younger life, she struggled to get out of her home. So she's very much a homebody. Physically, Leaving her home would give her significant anxiety and panic attacks. And so when I came into her life and my other siblings came into her life, she still had that struggle, although it was very much controlled by uh, medicine. But it meant that my family environment was at home. We barely went out. We, we never went on a family vacation, partly because we were too large of a family to do so, but also because my mom getting in a car and driving for more than 20, 30 minutes would result in her having significant anxiety attacks. That, I think, in many ways did spark something in me, although I didn't know it until I was much older. I started going to basketball camps every summer, spending overnight. And I'm talking 30 minutes away from home. But those short weeks away from home really sparked my interest in saying, oh, I can be away from home. And I was nine years old at the time. And I can be away from home. I can still have a relationship with my mom, which was really important to me, but at a distance. And that started when I was nine. But it really started to take on... Let's say a life of its own identity it's of its own when I was getting ready to go to college and and my career in basketball, which meant that I had to speak a went a weekend out or a night out that all helped to shape and prepare me for going to university three hours away from home and then essentially living abroad. I attended Brown University, which is one of the eight Ivy leagues in Rhode Island for me that was like I said three hours away from home I studied political science with American and an international relations discipline and I shock going to from Schenectady to New York, which is a very diverse but very humble town impoverished, a lot of struggles. You see a lot of different types of people on drugs and mental illness and all these things that you see. Then going to an Ivy League school where I went to school with Emma Watson, which is Hermione. I went to school with uh, governors, daughters and sons and politicians, daughters and sons and high, very affluential, educated, but also the children of powerful corporate business owners. And I was in way into something that I had never experienced before. And I was in shock. The first two months were really difficult for me. I thought I wasn't going to be able to cope. I thought I wasn't going to be able to adapt. I remember having my first panic attack in my dorm, thinking that I was not going to make it, which was really scary for me. And it was challenging. It was challenging knowing that I had begun or entered into a world that I, my family wasn't going to be involved in, that because most of my family did not go to college, my mom didn't graduate from university until after I graduated from university. So there was really, really... I think a traumatic experience, but also a learning experience and the fact that it did make me stronger. And in college and seeing all that it did eventually offer me and all of the great memories, great experiences that really set me up for being able to go abroad. I didn't study abroad while I was in college because I was playing basketball. And because of the basketball season falls between the fall semester and spring semester, if I wanted to, it would be during the summertime, but during the summertime, I made every effort to be at home. I knew that I was making a sacrifice by being away from home during the academic year. I chose not to do anything. I barely worked, or if I interned, I interned at home, back home, because I wanted to be with my mom and family. But th- that being said, my experience at a day-to-day at Brown made me realize that I wanted to do explore more. And my mom always said, broaden your horizons. And that's essentially what my experience at Brown allowed me to do. So Sheila
1: took a major leap of faith to move away from her family to attend Brown University. So I asked her, what did she do after graduating?
0: My goal after Brown was to continue playing basketball because I was, I always had those hoop dreams. I had a really successful career individually at Brown and even though I graduated my focus was I the love in basketball to to go to Spain to go to Italy to wherever it was to play basketball abroad not having into account or realizing or being too naive to realize like that I wasn't going to be able to make a living from that and so right after I graduated I was looking for teams I had an agent I had two options the first one was to go to Finland And I was set to go, and then the contract fell through because it was a a small team. They didn't have any money to pay for their internationals. I ended up not playing at all the first year out of college. I was training, and I was doing showcases and tryouts, but I was back home. I wasn't working or anything. My mom was essentially supporting me. I didn't have to pay rent, so it also wasn't something that was financially restrictive. So I graduated in 2013. In 2014, the fall of 2014, I did receive an offer to play in Scotland and get my master's there. It was something that kind of fell in my lap. The coach that would have been my coach at the University of Edinburgh reached out to my college coach looking for players. And I just so happened to be available. And it was something that I wanted to do. I didn't think I would get my master's as soon as it happened. But I was given a scholarship to play there at the University of Edinburgh. And I studied Sports policy, management, and international development. And that's what I did for a year. And that's what opened the door for me to continue to stay in Europe. I asked Sheila to
1: describe to us her experience studying in Scotland and playing basketball. In Scotland,
0: I actually arrived as soon right when they were doing the referendum for independence. I arrived the exact same day. It was the 12th of September 2014. And it was when they were doing the referendum. So obviously I was there seeing the nationalism, seeing the parade, seeing everything happening and realizing how politically active an entire nation can be. Nation within nation, which was for me different then what I've experienced and what i 'd studied because it's coming from a political science background. The politics in America are very distinct in a lot of ways in other countries, but it was nice for me to be in a community where I was one of the few Americans. There aren't very many Americans in Europe living, but there are even fewer living in in Scotland. Probably because it's not a destination. It's not even Edinburgh compared to London. It's not a huge city that people are saying, "Oh, that's a weird place where I want to have a kid and a family or whatever." So that for me was an experience to say, "Okay, I'm one of the few. Not only one of the few Americans, but also one of the few Black female Americans." I don't. Th- I honestly don't think I met any other black female American while I was there. That was my first real introduction into uh, to Europe. And then playing was funny. Playing was funny because the level was a lot lower. I had no idea. I didn't do any research. I was like saying, I'm going to, to Scotland no matter what happens because I get to play. But playing was a a very big surprise because I was playing with girls who are on the Scotland national team That wouldn't probably have made my third string JV team in my town a high school. And they were representing Scotland on the national stage. So that for me was surprising. It was a lot of fun because I had the opportunity to have lifelong teammates. And my teammates from Scotland are still some of my closest friends. Even the coach, I still talk to him on a regular basis. The great thing about my coach is he was from... The Netherlands but he had a very much American style of training and coaching so I what I was fortunate to have is somebody who brought what I was looking for which was practicing every day two times a day in the weight room in the gym very much the same American style even but from my teammates it was a shock for them. So it was a lot of times a clash between cultures, the American basketball culture and the European and the UK basketball culture, which was a lot less demanding. The best part, though, is that I was recognized uh, many times by the university for all of my performances. We went on to win the national championship. We went on to help create the first Scottish basketball team that played in the British Basketball League or the WBL. Part of what our success is, it helped to promote that and motivate that change. When I played, it was only the National League or the Scottish National League team. When I left, they got promoted to the British Basketball League. So for me, it was really cool to see that I helped bring about that type of change of promotion to Basketball Scotland. I think overall, the experience was Fun. I had my best games. They're still on YouTube. I, they still get talked about for a long time. I was, I even was promoted on this big billboard after I left the year after I left on the, in the, at the university. So it was an experience that definitely a positive one, really different than what I anticipated. I actually don't know what I did anticipate, but it was a pleasant surprise in a lot of ways, even though there was a lot of growing pains and a lot of uh, adaptation that I had to face. That being said, <laughs> Scotland in general and Edinburgh is a place that I would visit again I don't think I would ever live there just because the weather sucks <laughs> and it's really it, in the winter time it gets dark at 3 p.m which is it's not it's not an appealing place to live f- for a long time
1: Sheila attended grad school and played basketball in Scotland and besides the weather had a pretty great experience she then decides to move to Spain to continue playing professional basketball. And so I asked her to tell us all about her experience living and playing basketball in Spain.
0: I was going to stay in the UK. I received an offer to go play in Manchester, but England began changing their visa process and then I was not allowed a visa. And August of 2015... I didn't have anywhere to go. I did not want at all to go back home. I was miserable with the thought of that. And a friend of mine who had also done the same thing I did in Edinburgh told me about playing in Spain and her team in Mataró, just outside of Barcelona. I reached out to the coach saying that I wanted to play. And I essentially received an under-the-table contract to play in Spain. I arrived in Spain on September 7th of 2015, and I've been here since. So Spain was definitely another shock in a lot of ways. Basketball-wise, I was, yeah, I'll explain that first because it, it ended up being, my lack of adaptation ended up being one of the reasons why I stopped playing just because Spanish basketball was so different. When I first arrived, I was playing for a third division team, the team in Mataro, And it was really interesting because I was definitely the best player on the team. But I wasn't given the same spotlight because politics and Spanish basketball at least on the female side, but definitely also on the male side it's if you're the international player most of the time American, they wanted you to come and do your job, but you you weren't going to get the accolades so I started playing I had been a starter for every game since probably my freshman year of high school so I'm coming and I'm thinking, not that I'm the American, so I'm better, but also that respectfully, I had been practicing with the team since the start of the season. Respectfully, I should be starting the games because I know what I can produce compared to my teammates. And, but that it didn't happen for probably for the first half of the season. I was coming off the bench after the first five or six minutes of the game. Again, asked to do what I could do and then subbed out before the game was over. And I was subbed out before the game was over. And I figured out why, because at the end of the games in Spain, they applaud and they wanted to give the recognition to the Spanish players that were on the court. And for me, that was really surprising to see because I'm a team player. So the accolades go to everybody. At the end of the day, I, my, my objective is to win the championship, not so that I look good. I want to win. I want the championship. And so for me, my first experience seeing that was, it wasn't. I don't want to say it was inevitably negatively impacted me, but it, I think it definitely motivated me to keep showing that I'm here for a reason and you're going to have to eventually give me my praise and give me my flowers. When I first arrived, I didn't speak any Spanish. I didn't speak Catalan, which is being for, and, and Mataró and being in in Catalonia is a necessity at the end of the day, I think. And so adapting was really hard, but I, figured out how necessary it would be early on because my coach barely spoke English. My teammates, most of them, they tried, but they didn't speak. They didn't speak uh, English that well. So it was really something that if I was going to be able to get on and get on per- well enough, I was going to have to start speaking Spanish. And I started, I bought some books on Amazon and started speaking or practicing and teaching myself probably a few months after I arrived. So I played for five years. I played for Montero for one year and then Barca for four years. And I stopped playing in 2019. And what there are definitely several factors that motivated me to stop playing. The first thing is that women's sport in general, but definitely in Spain, is not... You can't earn a living doings unless you're on the top teams. And even though I was playing for Barca, I was and they it was they were not investing money in the women's team. While I was playing for Barca after I finished I was working full time. I started working at the headquarters of Puma for Puma Europe. And then I had to start realizing that I was working and playing just to satisfy my daily needs and expenses. And then on top of it, I came from the U.S. and this American-style coach in Scotland where we were practicing two times a day to up to 25 hours a week commitment just for basketball. And the difference that is that is that in Spain, we were practicing three times a week, If we were lucky, two hours, but usually an hour and a half. And then we were playing games on the weekend. And my teammates were smoking before the game, having a beer before the game. And I'm like, oh, but we have to go play now. What are y'all doing? And then and then our practice times also were at 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, which meant I was getting home at 12, sometimes later, and then having to wake up at 6 a.m. to beat traffic to get to Barcelona. And work again. And I was able to do that the first year, the second year and the third year. And then my last year with Barca, I started feeling that this, I couldn't, I couldn't fully accept that type of situation, that type of commitment, because on top of it, my teams were good. We won a championship and then we were winning. We were getting promoted to the, we started, Barca started in third division. We won a championship, got promoted to the second division and then we were playing against teams every time in the playoffs and the and against teams that were you have having fully professional schedule. And then we were not winning at the we would win the entire season and then we would go to the what's called the Fase de Ascenso, the promotional playoffs where you if you win, you get promoted to the first division and that's the top league in Spain. And what bothered me the most, as I say, is like, I have a really competitive attitude and identity and personality. And so us winning all the way through the season and then getting to the door to the promotion to the championship and then losing because we're not training as much and practicing as much as the other team was, it wasn't something that I could absorb. And I, like I said, I allowed it for the first year and the second year because we got promoted and we won. And then the third year and the fourth year, I can tell you that I remember the day that something clicked in me that said, I'm like, I, I, there's no more. I'm not giving much more passion to this because I'm the type of person that I would have butterflies. I would have the same type of nerves no matter what game it was. And there was one, one, one game to the next where something clicked and I didn't have that feeling of nervousness anymore. And I knew That something had changed. My passion for basketball, playing basketball had changed. That happened in January of 2019 and I knew that something was wrong. And at that point in time, I started, I even started seeing a a sports psychologist. Actually, she was Canadian and she was in Barcelona. But I remember when that happened that I was like, I don't, I sought her out. I think it was with the, There's a group of the American Society of Barcelona, and she was in it, and I reached out to her. And the thing is that I thought something would click again, and it didn't. And I went the last half of the season crying on my way to practice, regretting that I'm being there, not wanting to be there And that's when I knew it's a done deal that I can't do this anymore. And I have to say, it was a, it also, there was, there was strain on my relationship because at that time I had been with my partner nearly four years and he's not a a basketball player. He's not an athlete, never lived the, the experience of being a professional athlete. So the way that it was, is that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I would go to work all day and then I would go to practice. And I wouldn't get home till 11 or 12 o'clock at night. So that meant Mondays, Wednesday, Friday, we weren't together except for sleeping. And then on the weekends, if we had a game on Saturday, all day Saturday, our Saturday was taken. And if we had a away game, that meant we were at the airport at whatever time. they asked us to be usually 6 or 7 a.m. on a Saturday. And we got home on a Sunday. That means our weekends were gone. And this is the schedule from September to April. That put significant strain on a relationship. And I don't want to go as far as to say I was selfish, but I wasn't considering that fact. I thought it was something, a mutual decision. But it came down to being like, we're investing all this time and energy in basketball. And I was only making seven to 800 euros a month at Barca. So it was like, okay, we're doing all this sacrifice for three quarters of the year for... Four or five days a week and well, for what? And I tried to negotiate with Barca to make more money because I needed it and it would justify the sacrifice, the, the emotional and physical sacrifice that we were making. And essentially, when we finished the season, I, uh, we exactly what happened, what I knew happened. I was playing horrible. I well below my standard and well below what I knew I was capable of. We arrived to the championship again. We had the opportunity to win the games, even though it was very difficult. We didn't. We got left at the doors again. My coach, probably a month or two after, when he was reconstructing the team, came to me and said, "I want you to be on the team. I want you are a leader for our team. You provide so much." But what do you say? And at that point, I told him, "No, I don't want to play anymore because with my partner and I, and but also with myself, I knew that I wouldn't be able to contribute." Emotionally and physically what the team needed. And I knew that I had that passion that I once had for years, 20 years. I no longer had. And I decided to stop playing in 2019. So Sheila had a tough time
1: playing basketball in Spain. And so I asked her, how does she prepare for life after basketball?
0: I knew that basketball was no longer going to make me earn a living. And I would not just earn a living, but I'm watching LeBron James, but I'm watching teammates of mine, from guys from my high school, make 10 and 15,000 euros a month. And I'm like, in my mind, going overseas was, I want to be that because I I see them doing it and I was naive. I was smart enough having gone to the university I went to to have done the research. And I sometimes I think I probably didn't do the research because had I done the research, I would have stopped myself. From the experience at all. And I didn't want to do that. And deep down I think. I preferred to be in denial. And not do the research. Because it's evident that women. Don't make money in sports. And that should have been known to me. Well before. But so then. Knowing that I had already started working. Like I said I started working for Puma. And I was also teaching. And I was also doing basketball. Um, practices at the American School of Barcelona. And I was doing all of this. And none of it was something that I said, I can do this for the next 30 years. Working at a corporate office at Puma, seeing my colleagues there, and they've been doing the same desk job for 25 years. That was really for me really motivating to do the opposite, because on top of it, I was dedicating a lot of hours and a lot of time. And I'm sure you know, the paychecks here in Europe are a piece of shit. The You don't get sometimes even half or or one third of what a typical American would make doing that job. Obviously, the cost of living is a lot lower. But still, it's 40, 45, 50 hours between transportation, what you actually work, and It just didn't add up to me. And then on top of it, the fact that I'm working for somebody else. I'm doing all this work for somebody else's pocket. So... Back in 2017, I together with my partner, I started like figuring out what I can do in terms of entrepreneurship. What can I do? And and we started thinking along, not really blueprinting or mapping it out, but also using my own experience to create a company. Until February of 2018, I created my company Dixon Sport, which was going to bring players to the U.S. to have the basketball experience that the typical American basketball player can have playing in tournaments. And that's what I started in 2018. And that's what I've been doing since then. We started out just bringing 11 players to the U.S. and 13 of us in total. And this past summer, we brought 45 people to the U.S. And so as of 2021 or yeah, 2021, what I've devoted 100% of my time to. So I started it in 2018, I stopped playing in 2019, and it's been a process ever since. It's not been easy, definitely not been easy. It's not been, let's say, a profitable endeavor still, but it's something that I have a lot of passion in doing, and I think with the right tweaks here and there that I've been tweaking now, and I'm fortunate that I do have a partner that's been in business and started businesses a long time. So he's been able to help me do these tweaks that are making it more than anything stay afloat. But that's what I'm doing now. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. It allows me to stay connected to basketball in a different way. I still miss playing. Even now, I've played basketball tournaments and that are just amateur open events. And I realize that I still have it, quote unquote, still have it. But I miss playing. But at least with Dixon Sport, I have the opportunity to stay connected to what's provided so much to me. And now I'm fortunate enough that I have something that allows kids, young boys, and hopefully girls soon to experience what I've experienced as a basketball player and the reverse because they're going to the U.S. to do it and I was able to go abroad and come to Spain and do it.
1: Hey everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourishborn and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. So as Sheila was deciding to end her professional basketball career, she had started her own business. And so I asked her to tell us all about Dixon Sport, what it is and who it helps.
0: I try to provide opportunities for basketball players and hopefully other athletes to go as far as they can with basketball or their sport, that it be it studying get higher education, be it just an international experience. I've been, like I said, I've been doing it for five years. And actually, what I didn't mention is and two years ago during COVID, I launched a new company called Rookie, and that's my new baby. Rookie is an app, which is a... Essentially a recruiting platform But instead of helping American athletes That already have all the resources And what they need It's for international student athletes That want to go to the U.S. and study And honestly If anybody I will shout it out The Rookie underscore AP Or Rookie app on Instagram That's where I would really like the support Because that's what's That's my moonshot That's my goal That's what's That's going what's going to make me Have my soft life in 10 years Because it's a really cool idea That I've already The app is in the app Store, and it's something that I've worked uh, really hard and invested. Too much money, <laughs> too much money in already, but it is what is really taking a lot of my focus, both Dixon Sport and that. And it's, I'm full time on both. So I'm a full time founder, entrepreneur, and it's, it keeps me up at night. It has caused headaches. It has caused fights with me and my partner, but it's something that has really given me new purpose in life outside of basketball. And it's something that I hope really does take form and continue to grow because it's something that I find is really needed, but also something that I really hold dear to my heart.
1: So many of you may never have heard of Andorra, but it is a principality in the Pyrenees mountains in between Spain and France. And so I asked Sheila to tell us about her life in Andorra.
0: Andorra is a super small country, autonomous country between Spain and France. If you, it's about two and a half hours from Barcelona. We moved here. Uh, Andorra is a low tax country. And that's the basic answer is we moved here because my partner is a trader investor and um, we moved here for taxes. We also moved here just. At the end of the lockdown and COVID, so June, July of 2020, we had spent all of lockdown. I was still teaching and working with my company at the time. And we had done lockdown in an apartment that was reasonably big but for two people three or four months it was tough and not having fresh air our terrace was the size of a shoebox so it's not like we got fresh air for three months and then it was motivated by the fact that my partner had to be out of the country at a point uh, by a certain date so that the tax problem he wouldn't have any tax problems and because I wasn't playing anymore and I had finished teaching the school year I didn't have anything keeping me either and we moved to Andorra we we're living in a tourist apartment because it was so quick that we didn't have, had any, any really planning done. And so we got there and the transition was smooth enough. But the biggest difference is Andorra compared to Barcelona. I don't even know how the population of Barcelona, but I know it's significantly larger than Andorra. Andorra. Full time or passive residence is 90,000 people. Of course, there's a, it's a tourist town for the ski season because it's very mountainous. It's inside the Pyrenees Mountains. So it's a tourist attraction during from December to April. And, but yeah, there's 90,000 people <laughs> and there's one small city, let's say, which is Andorra La Vella, And, but we live in the higher elevation mountain part of it, which is called Soldeo. And that means where I walk out and I have goats and cows. It's completely different than Barcelona and even more different than Schenectady, in New York, which was my high school had 65 different nations represented and my high school class had 600 people. I don't even know how many people live in my town, but I think it would be somewhere around close to that number or smaller. Now, and it's been also another adaptation and cultural experience because Andorra is so small. It's definitely a bubble because of the 90,000 people that live here, only 45,000 are actually Andorran or Andorranos. That means, and the rest of the population are either Spanish, Catalan, French. I live 20 minutes from the French border and it's, that was an adjustment. And then while I was so shocked in Barcelona to say, oh, I'm the only black American female here in and Andorra, I'm one of the only blacks. And so I've learned to accept it. Sometimes I even feel good that I'm one of the only because I, you know, people notice me, they know me. Andorra is the type of place that you meet somebody and the next day you'll see them on the street somewhere else. So it's so small that you have these run ins. So that's in and of itself is his own experience and it's fun. But it is, it's been two years now. In February, we bought a house. First, my first house, we bought it together. And it's really nice to know that we actually are what you said in the beginning is like planting seeds and laying roots down. It's been uh, quite an experience. And I think we're closer to staying and living in Andorra for the long term than we would be to being in Barcelona or going back to Barcelona.
1: It's that time, y'all. You know what time it is. It's the time I ask the guest all about their experience. Dating Abroad. And I asked Sheila about her experience dating abroad, and she was super generous and transparent about not only dating abroad, but also navigating intercultural relationships and family abroad.
0: My dating was brief because I had dates with two other guys before I met him. And it was like, I didn't find any common ground with the other two guys. Gerard, the difference with Gerard is he went to the U.S. for a year when he was 17, lived in China for several years, so had an international, at least for international outlook on compared to the typical Spanish or Catalan. And that's probably why we got along is because in some ways he is very typical catalan and in a lot of ways he's not but i think that was where we found some commonalities me living abroad and him having lived abroad although in a very different environment being that china and shanghai But then in a lot of ways, it was really nice to be introduced to his family. Initially, his father was a bit more open to and accepting than his mom. His mom was a bit more closed off. But that I don't blame on anything other than the fact that he had another girlfriend who was Asian before before me. And I think probably they were just hesitant to commit to another girlfriend because they were together for years. But it was really nice to see how... His family eventually accepted me. And so much so as they are a typical Catalan family, maybe not so far as the independistas, but I think very prideful because his family, his father and mom grew up when at one point in time, Catalan was illegal to speak and illegal to teach. You couldn't, you could speak it, but you couldn't write it or it couldn't be found anywhere. So when I first started being involved in the family, spoke Spanish with me. And I, and so being invited to their home, then making the effort to speak Spanish, because that's at the time, the don't think I, I could speak. And then obviously when they were having a conversation amongst themselves, they would speak again in Catalan. But then making that effort for me was important. It's funny though, because being a Black American and knowing how important or relevant being Black in America is, here, black, being black is different. Being black is the color of your skin. So they see it in a different way than I think another, like an American would see me or somebody else. So, for example, my mom, she's extremely fair skinned. She could pass for white other than some of her face, her nose. Her, but to them, my mom was white because her skin color said it was too light to be... The complexion wasn't black enough. And so, for example, Gerard's mom would ask me... But no, she's white. And I was like, no, she's not because my grandfather was darker than I am and my grandmother was biracial. And, but they, that was the depth of. That was the depth of my blackness to them, which for me was also nice because I also dated a white guy in the U.S. And that experience was different (laughs) because it comes with all the being jaded with the struggles of dating a white man in America. But here was to know that I was accepted was really nice. But definitely Gerard and I have clashed. We have definitely clashed on the topic of what identity we would want. If we have children, our children and a half, what of my background, what of my Americanism I want to teach them, and what part of that identity I want them to have. We've argued about any number of things. Most recently, we were arguing about Meghan Markle and the royal family, and me, my stance being that. The royal family stated their racist claims against Meghan Markle being a part of the royal family, and we had a full-on argument that ended up in me yelling, he yelling, him breaking a plate because sometimes it got to that. And we've also had those really heated discussions about what do I as a Black American want my if especially if it's a Catalan Black American boy I if he if my son ever were to go to the U.S. There's some things that I have to teach him, as in the, because he's being he's not going to be seen in the eyes of the European. He's going to be seen in the eyes of the average American on both sides, and that has led to many times heated discussions, arguments, moments of reflection on both sides because it is so different that my experience is so different than his experience, and my identity is so different. And then, of course, also because our backgrounds are so different. I come from a mom who, in the last years of her life, had to go through a reverse mortgage. She was on Social Security. I have problematic brothers. Some of them were in prison. Some have been in trouble. Most of us didn't go to college. I did, and my sister did, but and my mom eventually did. That was different than what Gerard and his family we doing and Gerard and his father had a multi generational company, not a big company, but at their dinner table they talked about business. To this day, their family discussions are business related. And one way or another, of course, it's personal too. But it always ends up becoming business related, and that still surprises me because my family was gossiping, talking about why. My mom was single. My sisters were all single. Broken families, broken relationships. If I showed you a photo of my family in the most recent years, there are so many women and children and very few men. And all the adult women, except for me at the time, were in a relationship. My mom, through the entire 30 years that I was with her until she passed, she was single. And then Jarar And his parents have been together now 42 years. His grandma and his grandpa were together so many years. And that for me is so different than anything I had seen. And so of course that type of dynamic also came with its challenges because I came from the men and shit background because my sister's husband cheated on her and got another woman pregnant at the same time as she got pregnant. Or all these different dynamics that made it so where they were so jaded against having relationships. And then on top of it, the interracial relationship was another element that I, that I had to fight sometimes with my family about. Because having an interracial relationship also was not looked upon as a good thing in my household. My mom was very black and very proud. Even though at the same time as she was black and very proud, she was also saying black men suck. And so coming into this Catalan culture and not only being accepted, but also seeing how it was going to be a challenge for he and I, we had a lot of hurdles. And we still go through a lot of hurdles because there are some things we just don't see eye to eye on. And there's some things that for good or for bad are part of his personality. And the same thing for me. And we call each other Westies, which are like Worst best friend because we get into trouble, and we also got each other besties because he is my best friend, and I think that I am his. But there are these things that we get into because of his culture or mine that that make us worst best friends, or but also the best friends. Um But honestly, and I learned Spanish probably for the first full year that I was in Spain. So from 2015 to 2016 and then from 2016 to 2017. Probably the beginning of 2017, I started speaking Catalan and learning Catalan at a semi proficient level. Now I'm very proficient in Catalan and that, and then I have WhatsApps that are family WhatsApp with his family his sister, his brother-in-law, and his parents. And I saw the transition from when the family was speaking to me in Spanish until we were only speaking in Catalan. And for me, that was really important for their acceptance of me into their family, but also my acceptance of this is the family that I'm going to be in. And also that I knew that it would be okay if this family always spoke Spanish to me, but I felt it was my obligation to give salute and give respect to their culture and their culture is not Spanish their culture is Catalan and one of the big efforts that I made was speaking Catalan and now the family his father loves me more than his father loves him that's for sure and oh and I didn't explain about his grandma oh his grandma that was the lady that I had to convince the most And I, because she's 93 now and she's still kicking and she's still so active and witty. And she, in a lot of ways, she is, honestly, she's my grandma. But when Gerard and told her about me, I hadn't even met her yet. Gerard told her about me and she asked him something along the lines of, there were no Catalan or white girls that you could have been dating or you could have met. You know? And this is coming after he was dating a Taiwanese girl, too, so I suppose she was more curious as to why you keep going outside of the culture. And I can't recall the first time I met her. And I do recall speaking Spanish to me. And she was also her husband, George's grandfather, had Alzheimer's and dementia. So he was on full service care, being taken care of, although living still at home. And so they always had workers from South America who are in here in Barcelona working. So home health care aides. And they were Spanish. Even though they've been in Catalonia there 20, 30 years, they only spoke Spanish. And she thought that if with me, I, she only had to speak Spanish, but shortly after knowing her and beginning a relationship with his grandmother, I started speaking Capsuline with her. And she, still to this day, it's, I think it gives her pride. And for me, that's really important that she can have pride in who could be her a future granddaughter-in-law. And there was a point where... It went from being his girlfriend to being a part of the family for her. And that was when I knew I really had the approval of the person I needed to have the approval from. And because at the end of the day, the grandparents are, they're not the leaders of the family, but they do have that role of the elder. And so their opinion mattered. And I can't tell you exactly when it happened, but I knew probably 2018. We would go have breakfast with her and his grandfather before his grandfather passed. But it's when I knew that I was accepted also into that part of the family. And now she, we go visit her. She calls and she always says she loves us both. And I call her Abia, which is Grandma and Catelyn. But for me, that was really probably my... Biggest concern is that type of acceptance and that type of approval, because, of course, in America, you see all different types of interracial couples. But here in Spain, you see a lot more African men with Catalan or Spanish women than you do see of American, Black American women with a Catalan man. It just It's not you're not seeing that often. So I, all I can say is the relationship that we have together has been. Definitely challenging. I didn't mention, but I, I should have that. He has three children. They they've been living with us now since March, but and I've known them oh since about six months into our relationship. And that also adds, adds complexity, and that's just, that can be a podcast in all and in all of itself because there's so much dynamic there and so many differences and challenges we've been family in many different ways with his kids. And I, today I had to go to the pharmacy and get something for Ona, who's our oldest. And I addressed her as my daughter to the pharmacist. And the other day I had to get an appointment for Max, who is his middle child, who's 13 and get a haircut. And when I typed the message, I said, my son or mi hijo. No, it's like, I, we have this dynamic with the family that it's all about acceptance and integration. And it's very much a hybrid family, but it's added its own complexity and it's added its own challenges, but it's all of its fun and it's positive And I love them like they're my own and they love me like I'm their second mom. And I have a fantastic relationship with their mom and their grandparents on the mom's side. It's crazy. I honestly, one day we should just talk about that because it honestly is a story in and of itself.
1: Survivor's guilt is commonly defined as a very specific form of guilt that is developed in people who have survived a life-threatening situation or tragic circumstances in which they feel guilty that they survived, that they lived, that they persevered, that they escaped the situation. And this is a subject that I find really fascinating and has actually been a reoccurring topic of discussion with many of the women that I've met abroad. And so I asked Sheila if she experiences survivor's guilt, and if so, why?
0: This is a sensitive topic because... At some point, when I left, and it didn't send from me going away to college, but at some point, like I said, my mom adopted eleven of us, and then she had three of her own, but some of my siblings are estranged, and people went their own ways. But there was this core, my mom's two oldest daughters, who my sisters who are now, one's going to be sixty next year, the other one's who just turned fifty five man, at one point, i don't know what happened. I had come home from the su- for the summer, when the season was over, even when I was playing here abroad, I went home for a couple months and i don't know what happened where i got into argument with my sister and my nephew over the car that i bought my mom and they, my sister made a point in a very spitefully way to tell me that my mom said that i'm actually not her real daughter i'm her adopted daughter and it doesn't really matter that i'm in spain because the real family's home and my mom of course my mom had said that at some point when she wasn't feeling well with me because I had made the decision to be abroad and have a relationship abroad, which meant that I would likely continue staying abroad. But I had heard from my family. My mom went through her own grieving process and the five stages of grief well shock all the way to acceptance and me and my mom went through that from the time i left for college through the time that i went abroad and then we got to the point of acceptance and by the time we got to that stage of acceptance that i wasn't going to be home all the time but i was still going to be around and i was still going to take care of her our relationship was fabulous my mom passed away Uh, May 8th, 2021. So just over a year ago, when she passed away, she says I was her miracle. I was her blessing because of my family was dysfunctional as dysfunctional could be. And for many reasons. And there's a lot of fingers to be pointed in. But it was a lot of survivor's guilt and a lot of survivor's guilt that turned into me taking out student loans that I shouldn't have taken out. The majority of my student loans that I have now that I'm still prepaying now are because I made sure my mom was taken care of. And I made sure because she was only on Social Security by the time I went, you know, and so it meant I had student loans and giving my mom thousands of dollars just to make sure that she was okay, But it was also guilt. It was guilt because. I knew that in order for me to have what I wanted in life, I had to do this. And I knew to satisfy the needs of my family, which meant my, sister, my sisters stopped working when they were in their 50s or 40s and 50s because of mental illness, whatever, a lot of different reasons. And my mom was just fitting the bill on a lot of they; She was paying their rent. She was paying it. And for me to feel okay with not being there helping out physically. I had to send money. I had to do this. I had to fight for my own survival. And it meant a lot of times being like the outsider. I got the, oh, you don't care about us. You, you're you in Spain. Oh, you have your new family. I got all of that. Not so much my mom, that's my two sisters. So a lot of that was, and granted they were grown women by the time I was even born. But I got all of it. I went through a lot of it, struggles. And actually, I have to say, my mom was the glue that kept us together. Because when she passed, before we even had funeral services, our family exploded in in the most ugly, hateful way possible. And I was made the scapegoat by my sisters that I thought were my second and third moms. And since my mom passed... It's been a, over a year. I haven't talked to my two oldest sisters because they literally called me and my brothers and sister adoptees, and I had never ever heard that word from anyone in my family apart from that one time. From and the entire time I was, I thought that they were my sisters. Blood didn't matter. I thought that my mom was my mom, and I still think my mom, And my mom's best friend when she passed, and I explained to her what was going on. She said. She didn't get to choose those two daughters Of course she had children But she chose me, she chose to adopt me And so it's been Challenging and on top of it because my Brothers were in trouble They can't get a passport right now So I've been here eight years I haven't had Any family come visit me I had friends from college I've had friends from Scotland, no one in my family And I offered that I told my sister and my nephew multiple times, if you guys get your passport, $160 a person, I'll pay for you to come out here and visit me. Never did it. Their thing was, oh no, I'm not going to get on an airplane going over that ocean. And of course I had to swallow that because it was my decision to come here. And so I also had to go through the stages of grief, especially over the last year and a half and accept that I have family but I don't have any relationship with them. And I have a part of my life over the last eight years that I'm not going to be able to really share with them. My brothers, I have three brothers that are a year older than me, my biological brother that my mom also adopted. And then two other brothers that she adopted that I grew up with from the time we were infants. I'm very close to them, even more so now that my mom passed because they helped to protect me when I was being attacked and things. And last week I went to Morocco and my brother was really like saying, my dream to go there. You're living out my dreams. And I said, but I want your dreams and these type of these experiences to be ours. I want one day to be able to say that I went to Africa with my brothers or my brothers came to Europe so that they can be a part of my family here. And the good thing is that they're all at a point in their life. They're 31, 32 and 35 where they're finally getting on their feet. And I don't care that it took this long because I know that for the average American, it's a struggle. But they're proud of me. My brothers, my brother told me yesterday that he's so proud of me, that he always knew that I was going to be the star. And, and for me, that was really, it made me cry because I don't know if they, they really appreciated me being away. And so hearing from that what has been, and they've told me all the time, my brothers have definitely shown that they've been proud of me. But it's still been hard to not experience this part of my life with them for the greater part of my adult life.
1: I asked Sheila, what is her personal definition of wellness? And whether that concept and practice of wellness has been influenced by her time living abroad.
0: For me, coming from where I came from and growing up, wellness was always making ends meet having enough to get through the month. and I While I still have that philosophy, I think it's extended to physical health and wellness, taking care of myself, being mindful of my relationships. It's something that I'm learning more and more about myself because, especially on the physical part, because being an athlete, everything was easy. But now I have to make a conscious effort to go to the gym. I have to make a conscious effort to diet because now I'm not playing, so I'm not burning any calories. And that's the physical wellness, but I think it's important. But then also the emotional wellness is, it's a challenge. I've had a lot of loss in the last year and a half, both with the passing of my mom, the separation of my family. So it's been emotionally also very challenging. Right now I'm seeing a psychiatrist because I face struggles and I know that basketball, which used to be my Zen, my therapy, I don't have that either. And I'm also dealing with the loss of that. So it's a lot of things that emotionally I have been Having to deal with, and I know that I can no longer deal with it on my own. And it's not something that I want or think that my partner has to take on as a responsibility. And so I've taken upon myself to see a psychiatrist to make sure that I'm okay. And that and when I'm not okay, which was like this past week, I called him and said, look, I need to see you because I haven't been okay. And for me, it's just being also conscious of that and knowing that there are resources, be it going to the gym, be it going to see a psychiatrist, be it changing your diet, intermittent fasting, whatever, so that I live a healthy, long life and I'm able to accomplish what it is that I still want to accomplish.
1: Thank you so much, Sheila, for sharing your amazing story with us all. If you're interested in keeping up with Sheila, you can via social media.
0: My Instagram is Sheila And there's where I share my personal life. And then my LinkedIn is also Sheila Dixon23. My number, my basketball number was Michael Jordan, so you'll find 23 all over the place and my handles. Then I have Dixon Sport is my Twitter and Instagram handle for Dixon or DixonSport.com. And then there's rookie, which is, like I said, I'm going to keep pushing rookie because that I'm looking for investors. I'm looking for friends and family, pre-seed round. So if anybody really wants to help me out, just get in touch with me. That's rookie.io or rookie underscore app or rookie underscore app.
1: Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, FlourishToTheForeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. If you are looking to move abroad and you want to do so with intention, And you have no game plan or you're kind of nervous about your game plan, I invite you to take the Move Abroad Intention course, which is a five week self-study course designed to help you go from intention and defining what a life well lived means to you, to money management, employment, deciding what to pack, what to leave, all the way to settling in and how to develop and nurture a community in your new country. Go as fast or as slow as you like because you always have access to it. You can sign up for the course at com, or there's a link in the description of this episode. Big thanks to Zachary Higgs who produced the music of this here podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing Abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign,
0: I got pregnant and everything changed. The way I looked at the world changed, things that I wanted to do with my life changed, everything changed. I wanted to be the person I wanted my son to be. I didn't want to just tell him to be it, I realized I had to do it in order for him to, and that meant coming outside of my comfort zone, trying new foods, trying new places, facing my fears, coming outside of my comfort zone as much as possible, and I did all of that to show him that it's possible, that anything is possible.